it's it's such a it's such a brilliant point and i think just quickly to to kind of touch on that we can reintroduce say bighorn sheep to a mountain range but unless the watersheds are healthy and and unless their their forage is available and unless the systems are connected to other adjacent systems and populations where gene flow can take place and uh, maybe seasonal habitat use can take place. It's really just a Band-Aid. And I think that's what we're experiencing today when we look at conservation. The really successful efforts are looking at systems, big systems, interconnected systems, as kind of the nursery grounds for biodiversity. Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. I am your host, Byron Pace. It is the 28th of April. We're in April already. That means it's kind of spring. 28th of April, 2022. Spring is around the corner if you're in Scotland. It hasn't quite arrived yet. Uh, for those of you who don't know, this show is out every four weeks. It's the Living with Nature series presented by Swarovski Optic, where we ask our guests five questions around how they connect with nature. If you want to go back to the start of the series, find episode 197, when I spoke to Ben Lisdus from Swarovski Optic about the premise of the series and what listeners could expect. But we release the Into the Wilderness podcast every two weeks, and it alternates between this show and the normal, more longer-form conversational podcast where I speak to guests from around the world about all manner of things. They could be biologists, they could be explorers, they could be hunters, fishers... You name it, if they're involved in the great outdoors, they are somebody who fascinates me. When I'm not podcasting, I am the, con- well, I am still do this when I'm podcasting, but I'm also the conservation director at Modern Huntsman, which is a biannual publication dedicated to the sustainable use of wild resources and conservation. And you can get the whole back catalogue of, uh, well, eight volumes now, um, the eighth one being the most recent, which is all about conservation on the continent of Africa. You can get that on modernhuntsman.com. In this show, I catch up with a friend and previous guest, ecologist, Charles Post. In fact, he's also been a previous contributor to Modern Huntsman. Uh, Many regular listeners will be familiar with Charles. He's been on a few times. Uh, He is a master's graduate from Berkeley. He's a member of the IUCN Species Survival Commission. He's a fellow at the Explorers Club. He's a filmmaker. And he is one of my favorite people on the planet to geek out with. But before we get to that, a quick shout out to the top tier Patreons for this month who include Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman of RD Contracting Dakota UK, James Marchington, the guys at South Asher Stalking, Thomas Cameron, Mark Zabrowski, and Colin Knight. If you would like to support the show, head over to patreon.com forward slash Byron Pace. And with that done, please welcome Charles Post to the show. Charles, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. And this is part, you've been on the show at least twice before, but this is a little different to the conversations that we've had before, which normally run to like hours. <laughs> um, the Living with Nature series. Wonderful. Well, thank you for having me, Byron. It's, it's always a treat. Um, I know that we could set aside three hours for this conversation, but um, I'm excited to dive into the questions that you do have and, and uh, catch up and hopefully nerd out a bit. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I'm always into nerding out with you. If it, if it involves salmon, well, mainly, for, I was going to say birds is not really my thing. I definitely have a pretty limited knowledge about birds. But I, there is one thing is is true. Whenever I see a dipper, whatever country I'm in in the world, you are the person that comes into my mind when I see a dipper on a river. It's like, oh, Charles would love, love to see this. 
I would. I would. If you could only see the, the wall behind my computer, it's peppered with Dipper illustrations and paintings. And so your uh, <laughs> your assumption that I'm a total Dipper fanatic is spot on. <laughs> <laughs> now, for people who maybe haven't heard the couple of conversations that we've had on the podcast before, and if you haven't, by the way, and you're listening, then I encourage you to go and search for Charles's name and find the previous shows we've done. Uh, but summarize like who you are and what you do, Charles, if that's at all possible, because you, have, you do so many different things for those people who don't know who you are. Yeah, yeah, I'll try my best. Um... So yeah, I guess just to start, my background's in ecology. I spent uh, nearly a decade at UC Berkeley studying ecology, uh, first as an undergraduate with really a, a, f- a focus and a foothold on watershed ecology. So thinking about that confluence of the terrestrial and the aquatic worlds. Um, after uh, I completed my undergraduate studies, I spent a few years working in the field um, just to kind of get my feet wet. And I had a chance to work on old growth redwood trees, looking at some uh, spiders that live in riparian corridors, looking at songbirds, looking at salmon, uh, amphibians, aquatic invertebrates. And that was really just a, a formative time for me in the sense that I was able to be curious, right? And I was able to be a mentee. Um, and learn from scientists and and uh, thinkers who had been asking a lot of important questions for many years. So that was a really, uh, a really wonderful time where it kind of it led me to my to the kind of the next journey I took, which was graduate school. And um, I remained at UC Berkeley, uh, studied under an absolutely brilliant woman uh, named Dr. Mary Power, who's a celebrated food web ecologist and it was under her uh, kind of tutelage that I really, I think, got to understand what it means to be a naturalist. Uh, okay. And the, the one thing she told us was, go and spend every day outside with a notebook observing before you even start asking questions, right? Get to know the world you're curious about before you start picking it apart. And that was um, what great advice yeah it was wonderful she gave she gave every first year graduate student a field a field journal and the task for that first summer was just fill it up before we even started our graduate work was just fill it up um and so yeah i finished graduate school um 2015 with a master's degree in integrative biology, looking at, as, as you noted earlier, uh, the American Dipper. Uh, <laughs> yeah, specifically looking at their behavior. Um, and so it was amazing. And I, and I actually, I, I left this uh, long stay at, at Berkeley for a number of reasons, but one of them was I, I could see that I was surrounded by absolutely brilliant minds, people who are so passionate so skilled, so tactful in their approach. And yet I was reminded constantly of this gulf between the work that was being done in academia by my friends and colleagues and the access to that information and the um, appetite for that information, in the general public, the people I surfed with and hunted with and drank beers with on the weekend and hung out with. And so I think that's what led me into this uh, current chapter of my life, which is one that uh, at the moment is 
is a bit um, dominated by this consulting work that I do, where I'm working with some uh, relatively large outdoor hunting and tech companies that want to better understand sustainability, ecology, and how they as a company can position themselves uh, in a way that can have positive impacts on their customers and the planet. Um, of course, I've made films uh, over the years. I've written pretty extensively. I've shot photos for various publications over the years, um, done field work over the years. But um, yeah, these days I, I spend quite a bit of time on my consulting work um, and then have the odd creative project that keeps me entertained uh, on the side. Okay, so now people have an idea of where you're coming from and they kind of, they'll understand more why you're answering this set of five questions the way you're going to answer them. So the first one, and I feel like there's a million ways that you could answer this first question, but how do you connect with nature on a regular basis? I feel like that's your every day, judging by your Instagram. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, of course, the last two years have been quite extraordinary um, for a number of reasons and for probably everybody listening. Um, and so while oftentimes throughout the year, I'd be traveling uh, quite extensively to work on a film or to shoot a photo story or to attend a conference um, or just take a, take a trip. I've spent a lot of, a lot of the last two years at home and we live on uh, 10 acres surrounded by hundreds uh, if not thousands of acres of open space and farmland and ranch lands. And so my daily connection with nature has been studying this place that I call home. Um, a bit, you know, I guess to take a page out of Aldo Leopold's Sand County Almanac, you know, to really understand the rhythms of a place. Um, there's the Latin word genius loci, which is, you know, the the spirit of a place. And I think that's been my study. It's been in the garden. It's been on the land. It's been understanding the comings and goings of the seasons and the, the species that that pass through our land uh, and, this, and the neighboring lands. And so that's been my connection. It's been really place-based. And it's probably the longest I've ever spent studying a patch of ground. And it's been incredible, totally transformational. Um, and so that's really been my thing. I mean, we do live in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. So of course we're hiking and going to the mountains and going to the forest and, and jaunts from home. But I think home has been, has been the study uh, at least in the last two years. And I think that goes to show that you can do that in your back garden, even if your back garden is, I mean, you have a big garden, but even if you have a tiny back garden there, you can still do that because things are always changing. There is a rhythm to nature to your point. Yeah, no, it's, it's so true. I, there's this wonderful world word that, um, that I constantly think about. It's called phonology, right? Phonology is like the, the sequence of events, the calendar, if you will, for nature, right? This is when the first bloom takes place, when the last leaf drops, when the, the, the swallows show up in March, um, whatever it might be you have, there's a, there's a, a calendar of events taking place and even the smallest of gardens, um, and that might be, you know, a migrating pollinator that comes through or a songbird. Um, and you're really connected to the broader living planet, right? Like you might be on a migratory path. You might have a stream running through your, your town or through your, your yard. 
Um, but even the, yeah, as you said, the smallest gardens are connected to this patchwork of, of nature. Um, and I think that's a really wonderful kind of grounding force for people. And it certainly has been grounding for me in the last, the last two years. If, uh, I mean, I, I realize, as I said that, that there might be some people who's like, who live in really, really urban environments who literally don't have a garden. And maybe there's a one or two trees in the street outside their house, but they're largely surrounded by concrete. How could people like that, if they have this desire or like they're listening to what you're saying, how do, you, how do those people connect with nature? I, I'm so glad you brought that up because I, I was born and raised just uh, about an hour north of San Francisco on the Pacific Flyway. So one of the, one of the uh, principal uh, bird migratory pathways, highways, if you will, passes right through San Francisco. And I, I must have been in high school. So 2004 or five, around then. I'd never seen a bald eagle before. Um, while they're quite uh, abundant now and, and widespread, I believe, in almost every state in the U.S., I hadn't seen one before. And the first one I saw, I saw in downtown San Francisco in October, flying north to south, you know, headed south, but right through the city. And if you look at that migratory map, right, you can just Google Pacific Flyway or, or, or any other flyway for that matter across the globe. So many pass through cities. And oftentimes it's just a function of knowing that you should look up or knowing that you should have a good look around. And while you may live in a high rise in the city in San Francisco, you are, you know, 50, 50 floors off the ground or whatever it is, 10 floors off the ground. I mean, your, your, your eyes are in that flyway. I mean, thousands and millions of birds are passing through that city every year. And, and, and it, the same goes for many other cities across the world. And if it's not birds, um, stories of, of urban ecosystems coming to life at night, right? With rac- raccoons and coyotes and um, migrating pollinators. Uh, you could have a little garden on your stoop or a little garden on your fire escape if that's legal i don't know uh but you'd be surprised you know build it and they will come i think that's kind of the 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 sentiment that people across cities across the globe are are really um being reminded of i love that though because you know for me birds are the thing that carries me through the season and i've probably mentioned this on a podcast before but for I know that when I hear the oyster catcher out my window in the morning for the first time of the year, that spring is coming. And I know that when I hear geese overhead for the first time, just when the temperature is changing, that for me, that's autumn. And that's all stuff that's happening above my head. And I happen to live somewhere that's very rural. And so nature is very much all around me and sometimes in my house when bats are flying around. But um, it is the birds above my head that determine my year. So you're so right, Charles. And, you know, it's even in cities, I'm thinking about um, raptors returning to Central Park, yeah, which has just yeah. been tremendously exciting for people, for urban birders. I'm thinking about peregrine falcons nesting atop skyscrapers across the globe. I mean, peregrine falcons are one of the most cosmopolitan birds of prey uh, on the planet and they are quite adept at picking a, a windowsill in a high rise or a bridge 
or an abandoned um, building. You know, there's there's also a really wonderful story which I wanted to touch on a little bit further uh, in our conversation. Uh, but thinking about uh, kitty wakes, which is the world's most abundant gull, it's a circumpolar gull that lives in the northern latitudes, um, really thriving in abandoned factories. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it's again, it's 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 amazing what nature can do if if we give it a chance and it's also amazing how much nature there is if we take a moment to really have a good look around absolutely so with that in mind to question two we often focus on a lot of negatives in the world of of conservation Mm -hmm. and, and with wildlife but there are equally a lot of people and companies doing amazing things, particularly with how we connect with nature. Do you have any kind of standout examples of that? Yeah, you know, the first that really comes to mind and, and to, to, to play into our, our shared uh, love for salmon, you know, I, I can't help but, but uh, point out Bristol Bay. The Bristol Bay oh, campaign yes. has, has been running literally since I was in high school 2004 i had a bristol uh, no pebble mine sticker on my car and so since then and and maybe it started a few years before 2004 but since then it's been an active campaign that has been i would say almost singular in it, singular in its ability to combine the 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 love and the passion of wild salmon across unlikely partnerships this is commercial fishermen these are birders these are recreational fishermen hunters and anglers um outfitters uh people across the globe have joined this groundswell to save one of the planet's last great salmon strongholds which is also home to you know uh an abundance of, of wildlife, um, and interconnected, open, intact ecosystems. And so I, I think Bristol Bay as a case study has just been not only amazing in the sense that it's been so, um, long lived and resilient, right. It's been marching along for so many years, but it's also been really, um, unifying for a lot of, for a lot of, like I said, maybe unlikely allies. And so that's been an th- effort that do you think it's that people began to realize what they were going to lose rather than necessarily like what they had the connections they were going to lose if that mine went ahead yeah you know I, I think especially for people on the west coast of the u.s the east coast or i guess i should say the northeast and then of course throughout the, the uk um, Iceland, Norway, you know, salmon have been a, a major player in the shaping of, of the world, right? All it's, it's been a, a huge resource that sustained peoples for thousands, tens of thousands of years, if not more. And many of those places where salmon were once abundant, they are now non-existent, uh, maybe locally extinct in some places. And so I think what was so, I would say, almost captivating about this Bristol Bay campaign is that in the 21st century, there are still places where salmon are so thick, you could literally walk across their backs. 
where the ecosystem is so rich and so intact that the megafauna are thriving, that there are wolves whose coats have a tint of red to them because they eat salmon. I mean, there's these stories that are almost like otherworldly and they exist. Like these are contemporary. And so I think really like the, the, the richness of that narrative, I, I just think captivated people. Um, and it was, it was a strong unifier because if you grew up in places where salmon were once common, abundant, that was a, that was a thread, a narrative that you could pick up on and, and had some connection to. And so I think it was a lot of like, we knew what we had lost and it was amazing that there was still so much to save. Yeah. And that fight now is over as far as I understand it. Yeah, you know I, that's which my is amazing well. to say that it is, it is, and I and I I, I want to say there are still a few efforts that need to be made to ensure those protections are permanent and not at the whim of a future administration. Um, but I think at this moment, my understanding is that Bristol Bay has been protected. Um, though I don't think the fight is is at this point, you know, um, over and done. But we're definitely classing that as a win. And with that, yes, yes. We I want to ask you about conservation stories because that, although that is pretty recent, it kind of feels like for the most part it's behind us. And you're mm. you're somebody who's massively passionate about everything that you do, but is there one <laughs> conservation story that you know of or are involved in or in in whatever manner that you are particularly passionate, maybe more than others right now? Yeah, you know, and I, I briefly mentioned this just moments ago, but the Kitty Wake story is a is one that is that has captivated me since I first encountered Kitty Wakes uh, in the Arctic of Norway, what four years ago now, three years ago now, and I think what it actually draws a pretty a pretty tight parallel to the salmon example in the sense that Kitty Wakes, as I said, are the most abundant goal we have on Earth. They are circumpolar. They are they are um, incredibly abundant, common throughout their uh, their range. And when I was in Norway and I and I was encountering these birds nesting on on rocky outcroppings and cliffs and nesting on roofs and on sills of old fish um, houses. I started doing a little bit of research just out of curiosity to know more about this species. And what I found was shocking. The research that, you know, first was being published maybe 20 years ago and and continuing to this day was noting that as our planet warms due to climate change and as our oceans change due to shifts in temperature, shifts in current, Therefore, shifts in food availability. Um, these models, these predictions were suggesting that kitty wakes may actually decline and in some places become locally extinct, like perhaps in our lifetime. And it reminded me of the salmon story because you, and, and I guess you, you, you can read, you've, we've all read this, this example I'm sure in many, many different forms, but there are, there are species that were so abundant, we couldn't possibly fathom losing them all, right? Maybe it was the passenger pigeon, or maybe it was the, the bison of the 
North American continent, you know, these just overwhelmingly abundant species, uh, maybe as herring or sardines. And yet today we find ourselves with those species perhaps extinct, perhaps, uh, you know, just a sliver of what they once were. And so it was almost like you were, you were on the reverse end of that narrative with the kittiwakes. They were so abundant. People, they were so ubiquitous to the place. Nobody seemed to be worried. I'd ask fishermen and friends about the kittiwake, and I kept hearing, oh, these are the birds of my childhood. This is the sound. The cacophony of kittiwakes is the, is the soundscape of this place. It always has been, always will be. Nothing could ever change that. There are so many of these birds. And as I would go back to our house in the evenings to read, I was reading that kittiwakes in Norway, there is a possibility based on some of these predictions that they might be in peril due to our changing planet and the climate uh, crisis. And so that story has really kind of captivated me because, again, we're like at we're at the beginning of that narrative. They're they're presently abundant, but they are slipping away slowly enough where people aren't really noticing. And so there's just a trickle of work popping in to the peer-reviewed literature, popping into the uh, more popular literature. Uh, there's a story that National Geographic published um, in the last few years, look, like I said, looking at these kittiwake hotels. And what they are, are these, these buildings that were previously abandoned that are now being set aside in urban environments for kittiwakes to nest, because it seems that nesting habitat is a limiting factor for them. And so, yeah, that's a story I want to I wanna learn more about. Um, and as I mentioned to you earlier, uh, we're moving to Norway uh, full time um, in the spring, which s- feels crazy to say out loud. But we're just so thrilled. <laughs> well, you got to do it now. Uh, You've just announced it to the world. <laughs> I know, I know, no, it's, we're yeah, it's it's a uh, it's still surreal. But so I hope the Kitty Wake um, story will be one that I can learn more about and, and hopefully help uh, communicate. It's interesting that very often we only realize that there's a problem when it breaks over some sort of threshold that means that people mm. notice. And by that point, it's very often kind of gone too far to recover without human intervention. So I think that this is a really good example of how we really need to be aware globally of what's happening to species. And I suppose that's that is very much what the IUCN Red List is about and being able to categorize the current state of populations around the world. Um, but there's a lot of species out there and some we don't even know yet. Some that exist, but we don't know they exist. So it's quite hard to care for something if you don't know it's there. Um, it's actually right. one of the, and we're not going to go into this deep dive because otherwise we will be here for an hour, but it's one of the reasons that I very much prefer talking about ecosystem conservation rather than species conservation, because it is that great umbrella that kind of covers everything that exists within it, even that which we don't know yet. It's it's such a it's such a brilliant point. And I think just quickly to to kind of touch on that, we can reintroduce, say, bighorn sheep to a mountain range, but unless the watersheds are healthy and and unless their their forage is available and unless the systems are connected to other adjacent systems and populations where gene flow can take place and uh, maybe seasonal habitat use can take place. 
it's really just a band-aid. And I think that's what we're experiencing today when we look at conservation. The really successful efforts are looking at systems, big systems, interconnected systems, as kind of the nursery grounds for biodiversity and the and the refugia for biodiversity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, to something a little bit more positive than that. Uh, now, I, I, without question, there will be people listening to this podcast who see you as somebody who inspires them to do things and, and integrate themselves, do positive, you know, whether do, do things positive in, in the great outdoors, whether that just be litter picking or just caring and picking up a, a pair of binoculars. And like you were talking about right at the start of this podcast, just existing in nature and learning from it because you post such long and incredibly detailed mini essays on your Instagram. But is there somebody <laughs> who inspires you, Charles? in the outdoor space or in the, the conservation space? Yeah, you know, I, I, I have to say Chris Tompkins. Um, okay. She's the, the co-founder of Tompkins Conservation, uh, Conservation Patagonia's, uh, their, their local effort in South America. Um, but she is somebody who I feel just incredibly privileged to say is, um, you know, a mentor of sorts, somebody that I'm able to connect with from time to time and learn from. And what inspires me about her is that is that she and her um, and her um, husband Doug, who tragically passed away um, a few years ago, have been able to conserve massive interconnected ecosystems in South America, purchasing ranch lands that used to really focus on um, livestock production and essentially allow them to be rewilded, uh, to reintroduce jaguar and to reintroduce caiman and, you know, the kind of the keystone species, the, the species that really help keep that fabric intact, that ecological fabric intact. And so she not only has, I think, tremendous vision, but she's also figured out a way to build to cultivate buy-in, right? Which is so Conservation important. Conservation, which is so important, especially in this day and age when we're all so connected and our attention is the, um, the competition for our attention, right? The attention economy is an incredibly competitive space, whether it's ads or news headlines, um, friends, family, whatever it is, right? We're being pulled, our, 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 our mind's eye is being pulled in so many different directions constantly. And so to find somebody in the conservation space that has successfully built an army, one that has had the success that Tompkins Conservation has had, I think is incredibly unique, especially looking at the millions of acres uh, that have been protected is especially unique. And so she's somebody that is um, a bit of a, um, I guess you could say like a cheerleader, somebody who is is putting those whispers in your ear to you know forge ahead keep on you know don't give up uh, be be bold be audacious um you know active activism is building an army that's what she always says uh, so find that thing that keeps you up at night and 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 fires you up in the morning and and build a community around it and i think that's where we're finding a lot of these successes in the conservation space 
Brilliant. What a great what a great suggestion for somebody who inspires you. And with that, we get to the last question. And I, I, this always feels like an impossible question, especially for somebody like you. But is there one particular standout memory that you have where you felt, wow, that is what connecting with nature is about? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, I think... The first that comes to mind, I might have two quick, quick. Uh, you can give two. I'll let you. Just because it's you, Charles, you can have two. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Byron. Thank you. Uh, I'll keep them brief. The first was again back to salmon. You know, I, I grew up in a town uh, peppered with redwoods, kind of right where the redwoods meet the oak woodlands, right? So it's like that that confluence of the the fog and that kind of temperate rainforest where it meets that 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 lee side of 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 the fog belt. Um, but we had salmon. So growing up just over my back fence, there was an old salmon stream. Um, years before I was born, the army Corps of engineers, uh, in their, in their brilliance, uh, filled it up with cement and turned it into a, basically a, uh, a, a, a storm drain, uh, to move floodwaters out of the valley and, and into the bay. But as a young kid, every fall, a few salmon would make their way up to the dam where the, where the floodgate was. And I remember my dad, you know, uh, advocating for us to climb the barbed wire fence and, and get down into that storm drain. And we, in one particular moment uh, that I'll never forget, caught this, this coho salmon, put it in a, in a bucket, brought it out of the storm drain and, and walked it upstream. And that was the moment where I realized we have done something to this planet. And it's going to take people like me in that moment to do something about it. Because that salmon had, there was no, there was no way forward, no way ahead. Like that salmon's life for millennia, it had evolved to do just what it was doing. And now it had had its nose butted up against a piece of cement. No way to go further upstream. And so as a young kid, I mean, I was in maybe elementary school, um, young, like, I don't even remember how old, but one of my earliest, you know, kind of nature moments. And that was when I, yeah, like I said, I, I realized that we needed to be proactive, that, that, and that, and that one small moment could have massive impacts, you know, to watch that salmon swim through the alders in the, uh, in the Bay Laurel a little bit further upstream was like, a moment I'll never forget. So I think that was what really triggered me to to be involved and to like get my hands dirty, you know, and really realize that it's going to, a lot of this change is going to take place where the, where the, you know, the cement, you know, touches, touches the earth, right? Like that confluence where, where wild and urban environments or, or suburban or whatever environments kind of, um, you know, dovetail. And then I think quickly that the, the second the second example for me that was maybe a bit more recent um, was the first bird I ever banded, the first songbird I ever banded. To hold a, a little warbler, just a few ounces in your hand, right? Brilliant yellow. Its little eyes staring up at you. It's hard. I love racing. a yellow warbler. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's something so just captivating, something so powerful about that moment to feel its body pulsing in your hand it's so gentle but you also recognize it's not lost in me that this bird is migrating 
thousands of miles, perhaps, taking this epic journey twice a year, and you're the first human to ever hold it in your hands. And I think in that moment, I was reminded of the incredible responsibility we have that these wild lives are resilient, but they're also incredibly fragile. And that was a moment where I really started to pay more attention to birds, to migrations, and to these these threads of wildlife that really bind hemispheres, right? The the tree swallows that live in my garden for three months of the year are in Nicaragua right now. And there's maybe a family in Central America that's keeping an eye on the birds that I keep an eye on all summer. And I think that's something that, that that's like incredibly special. I love that, Charles. What a you speak with such passion and eloquence when it comes to nature. Uh, it's really, really rather beautiful. So thank you so much for sharing your living with nature. I have no doubt that people will be um, thinking to themselves, I need to spend more time because listen to how this man speaks about his time with nature. So I appreciate your time. I appreciate the work that you're doing. And thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Byron. It's always a treat. <laughs>